we have a huge plastic pollution crisis on our planet. It's serious and it's enormous. And I would ask everyone to start living their lives with less plastic and do it in a really meaningful way. It will make a difference. Diversity of ideas is harder than it looks. Welcome to Innovation for All, conversations on the social impact of innovation with your host, Shana Alkvist. Welcome to Innovation for All, where it's my job to speak with innovators and technologists about issues on culture, social systems, and diversity. I'm your host, Shana Alkvist. Paul Tasner is the co-founder and CEO of Pulpworks, and more recently, the co-founder of Sort. He's got more than 40 years of operations experience and ventures ranging from startup to Fortune 100. In 2012, Paul took a leap of faith. While his peers were contemplating retirement, he embraced the challenge of disrupting the traditional packaging industry. Appalled by the amount of plastic pollution on our planet, and no longer content to accept the dangers of plastic packaging materials, he founded Pulpworks and set out to create safe, eco-friendly packaging for consumer products. In 2017, Paul was selected as a TED resident. His TED Talk, How I Became an Entrepreneur at 66, has been seen by more than 2 million viewers and translated into over 28 languages. So why did I want to have Paul on the show? Well, hopefully, if you're a listener of Innovation for All, it's clear that to me, diversity is really about diversity of ideas. And diversity doesn't just mean having more women or having more people of color. It means having lots of different kinds of people. And that includes people who are untraditional in other ways. So what I thought was interesting about Paul was he became an entrepreneur for the very first time at 66 years old. What on earth made him do that? First of all, uh, we talk about that. But also we talk about what are the different attributes that a 66-year-old has that may make them uniquely well-positioned to run a startup for the first time at that age. So we talk about, you know, those skills that he maybe had because of all of his years of experience. Uh, We also talk about whether he felt he was experiencing age discrimination. You know, did he have trouble pitching his startup? We talk about the uncertainty of, you know, if he did get a rejection, How did he know whether that should be attributed to ageism or some other issue with the startup, you know, and how did he negotiate that space? And lastly, I asked him if he had any additional empathy for maybe women or people of color or other traditionally marginalized groups that he now as a first-time entrepreneur at 66 might have had a different kind of experience than he had had earlier in his career. And lastly, before we get to the interview, do you love Innovation for All? If so, I hope you've already rated and reviewed us on iTunes. If you have, thank you so much. You can help support us further by sharing an episode that you love with a close friend. And if you haven't left us a rating on iTunes, please, please, please do so. It really helps us get the word out about the importance of diversity of ideas. And without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Paul Tasner. Paul Tasner, welcome to Innovation for All. Thank you. To start off, can you tell me a little bit about the company you currently run? Certainly. It's uh, Pulpworks, and it was founded a little more than seven years ago. And also noteworthy is it's uh, my first entrepreneurial venture. Before that, I spent the last 40 years gainfully employed, so to speak, in the corporate world for a variety of companies, large and small, mostly in the area of manufacturing and packaging and consumer goods, that sort of thing. So this was um, this was a really new departure for me and took me quite a while to, to take that leap. But once I did, I never looked back. And I'm thrilled to have finally mustered up the courage to do it. So you mentioned a 40-year career. Let's take a pause and say, how old were you when you started your first startup then? Uh, 66. 66. So your regular old 66-year-old man working for the man, and you yes. decided to start your first entrepreneurial adventure. What on earth precipitated that? <laughs> and by the way, a shameless plug, um, the name of my TED Talk is um, how I started my first business at 66 years old, So, which I thought was kind of a lengthy title for a TED Talk, but apparently it seems to have worked because I think I've had the 
two million views uh, already for that talk. So I'm, I'm actually, I'm quite proud of that. How did this start? Um, well, uh, very, very simply, I was fired. It was the recession or just a little post-recession, you might say, but not really post-recession. I think the folks that were hit hardest by the recession would not have called 2009 post-recession at all. But um, I lost my job uh, as a result of a, a business downturn, or so I was told. And um, I spent the following couple of years doing some consulting work, something I'd done earlier in my career, but I, I did it kind of reluctantly. I, I had a good reputation and, and a good network, and, and so consulting projects were not terribly difficult to find, but I... I still did them sort of reluctantly. It, I felt like this was my last shot, so to speak. And um, I didn't want to end my career doing consulting. It just, it just didn't feel like the way I wanted to exit my career. Well, e- even at 66, why continue consulting? Why not just call it then? I simply couldn't afford to, quite frankly. I wasn't the savviest investor in, in my lifetime. and. Um, you know, didn't really have a huge nest egg to fall back on. And I, I live in Northern California and have a giant mortgage like most of my neighbors do. And so the idea of just packing it in and calling it quits, I suspect I could have done that if, if we, you know, decided to move to an area where costs were much lower. But, you know, I really like where I live and I didn't want to move. And besides, I... I actually like what I do. I like the work that I do. And so continuing to do it in one way or another just didn't seem to be a a choice, quite frankly. You've been consulting a few years at this point. What made you decide that it was time to take a leap on your own? Well, I had always wanted to, and I mean always. I grew up in a, I guess, a blue collar or lack of collar family even, and, um, you know, we didn't have folks that went out into the corporate world and things of that sort. So that, that was a pretty exotic thing for me to do in my family when I, when I took my first job. But um, I've always been surrounded by entrepreneurs. They may not have been captains of industry, but, you know, they, they were self-made people. They were their own boss. And I always found them far more interesting and charismatic than most of the corporate types with whom I worked during my lifetime. And so being an entrepreneur, doing something entrepreneurial was always, you know, lurking in the corners for me. I just never had the nerve to take the leap. You know, I had had four kids and expenses and mortgage, and it just seemed too scary to do earlier in my life. But now, you know, fired from my job, 66 years old, not really hireable, shamefully, uh, because, you know, with 40 years of experience, you'd think I'd be a good hire, but, you know, nobody's looking to hire a 66-year-old guy. I had fewer bills to pay, and, you know, the encouragement of my family, it seemed like the time to take that leap. It's just a matter of how to manifest that desire. Um, But the opportunity to start the business that I did start came in an interesting way. I had a colleague at my last job who also, he was a younger man, but he left his job and started a manufacturing business in China. And he he was manufacturing the kind of packaging that, that we make at Pulpworks today. He was doing it in China. And actually, briefly, can you mention what Pulpworks does specifically now? Yes, of course. We design and manufacture packaging for consumer goods. And we use the raw materials that we use are waste. We use uh, waste paper and waste agriculture. And when I say waste, I mean we use fibrous waste, cellulosic waste. And those can be turned into a pulp. And then the pulp, in turn, can be molded into packaging. I guess the best example of the kind of packaging that we do, although we don't do any of these, is something everyone has in their fridge. It's the egg carton. That is a classic example of molded pulp packaging or molded fiber packaging. 
Now, what we do is a little more sophisticated. We we don't do anything, you know, that's commodity like like an egg carton. We do a little more premium packaging. We focus more on electronics and uh, cosmetics and things like that. And, and we we don't use necessarily the same materials that are used for egg cartons, which is actually waste paper. Uh, we use a lot of waste agriculture, like sugarcane and bamboo, and it it gives a much more elegant looking package. But the technology is relatively the same. And now, what's the benefit of this kind of technology over maybe traditional packaging? For the most part, our intent it was right from day one was to replace plastic packaging. That's always been our goal, creating packages that look and behave like the plastic packaging that we wish to replace, but but they're completely recyclable or compostable. And unlike plastic, they don't remain on the planet for the next 2,000 years. So that's always been our intent. Got it. So you were watching your colleague manufacture something similar in China? Yes, yes. And um, he learns of my dismissal and reaches out to me and says, now that you're you know, exploring opportunities, I've got one for you. Oh, and what's that? He said, I'd like you to be my North American sales manager. And I said, you know, I'm just not a good salesman, to be honest with you. You know, I think you could do better. And he said, no, 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 you're, listen, you, you know, this industry, you know, you'd be great. And I have nobody in North America to represent me. I, I think it would be great, Paul. So I, I thought about it for a while and I just couldn't kid myself into thinking that I'd be the, the sales whiz that he was looking for. And, I, and so I declined his offer. But he did get me thinking about the kinds of things that he was doing. And I don't know how long it, it took before I got back to him. And I said, I'm not interested in being your sales manager in North America. But how about this? What if I start a business like yours, but without the manufacturing? What if I just start a business doing the design work and the business development work and use you as my manufacturer. And he said, for me, that's six of one half dozen of another. You're, you're still going to end up being my best salesman. So, And that's how we started. So I created my own business where he was merely, and I, and I don't mean to understate merely, but he was merely my manufacturer. And that's how I got started. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> What has surprised you about entrepreneurship versus being an employee, even if you've been a senior employee in the past? I guess I, I, you know, I got up to high middle manager or low senior manager. That was probably the, uh, you know, the level that I achieved during my career. So I, I was a VP at a couple of companies. What has, what the difference? Well, in grand terms, there's no comparison. I absolutely adore what I'm doing. I just love getting up every day. Everything I do is is for my business. You know, there's no politics whatsoever. And I found that the higher I rose on the corporate ladder, the more my job was political rather than operational. And I really found that distasteful. And not only that, I found the people that were willing to do things in order to go up that corporate ladder, I found them to be distasteful as well. And I, I knew I could never be like that. I could never subvert my feelings or opinions because they weren't politically correct at my company. That just wasn't me. So I knew I wasn't going to you know, ever have an office down Mahogany Row or whatever they call it. To me, Shana, there's there's just no comparison. The rewards, the rewards are so much greater emotionally and hopefully economically, but not necessarily, but certainly emotionally. And the challenges are so much greater too. I mean, I really challenge anyone who thinks they have a tough job to see what it's like trying to grow your own business. To me, that's the toughest job of all. What's been the hardest part for you personally? You know, because like you're mentioning entrepreneurship is complex and challenging. Is there anything in particular that stands out for you? Specifically, in our business, we are challenging the traditional industry, which is plastic packaging. And the hardest part has been to persuade our corporate customers to take a chance on making that conversion from their 
plastic package that they've been using in some cases for the last 50 years to ours. And often ours is at a slight disadvantage economically. They, you know, perhaps penny or two or a fraction of a penny more than their plastic package, which gives them even more reason not to make the switch. Although frankly, it's it's bad arithmetic. There's great value in being greener, great value. It's just it's just a bigger computation. It's not just comparing one item to another item. You have to really look at the bigger picture within your business. But yeah, persuading people to our our kind of packaging has been the biggest challenge. And that, but that's quite specific. And if you meant simply having your own business versus working for someone else, I would say in more general terms, the biggest challenge is securing customers. That's clearly the biggest challenge for us. It sounds like maybe you are head of sales after all. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I I love selling my business. I, I could do it all day and all night. I don't know if I'm good at it, but I, I do love selling my business. I've been told I'm not a good closer. And uh, I guess that's that's pretty important in sales. And that makes perfect sense. I mean, I, I've been a consultant, you know, even when I was employed, I was a consultant within my corporation. So, you know, consultants don't normally have to close. Maybe they have to close to get the project, but they don't have to close a sale. And so, yeah, it probably does make sense that I'm not a good closer, but I'm trying. So it's easy to imagine that coming to this role with the amount of experience you had, that that extra experience could be really valuable versus a 22-year-old who just got off the boat in San Francisco. Did you feel that investors or your partners were agreeable to that argument or did you have to persuade them? No, I felt like I had to persuade them. (laughs) This can be a very long discussion, Shana, about investors. We found we were not an interesting opportunity for investors in the San Francisco Bay Area. They have so many other options here, most of which are tech-related, and most of which have a, you know, a rapid payoff, you know, a year or two or three, and the company is already ready for sale to Google or Facebook. So investing in a business that turns waste into packaging with a pretty long horizon as far as payoff it just wasn't exciting to investors. And then complicate that even further, that the founder of the business has never done this before. He's a first-time entrepreneur. And if that isn't enough, he's 66 years old. So this wasn't a really pretty picture for investors. I get why they didn't beat a path to our door. And frankly, there was an enormous silver lining to that fact because the reason we were trying to raise money is that we wanted to build a manufacturing facility right here in the Bay Area. It was post-recessionary times. Jobs were scarce. Manufacturing jobs were definitely scarce. And green manufacturing jobs were unheard of. And we wanted to do something green here in the Bay Area where we would be taking local waste, converting it into packaging, employing local people. It was a real circular economy type of plan. And it sounded great and, you know, looked good on paper, etc. But I think if we had been successful, it may have painted us into a corner that was not a very competitive corner for us. It, it may have may have linked us to raw materials, meaning waste paper, that were not the most strategic raw materials for us to use. So by outsourcing our manufacturing, and by the way, we have six partners now, uh, after that, that first one that got us started that I talked to you about, now we have six partners around the world. So we have access to a whole variety of different raw materials, different geographies, different capabilities. It gives us a lot of uh, depth and breadth. And we wouldn't have had that with our own modest little facility here in, in the Bay Area. So I like the way it turned out. 
you know, I realize I could be convincing myself of that, but um, I've looked at this fairly objectively and, and I do like the way it's turned out. I think it's been best for, for me at this stage of my life, et cetera. It was the best outcome. What's interesting too, is you mentioned that this is how I might frame it. There was a lot of ambiguity about the investment. So it, it sounded like it was hard for you to get investor interest. And there were a lot of reasons, you know, you're a first time entrepreneur, there's the age thing. It's not a tech product. You're not going to have a payday in a year. Right. I guess I'm interested. Sometimes women and minorities who are going to raise experience challenge raising as well. And they have the same experience where there's sort of ambiguity about what's going on. It's like, there's the gender or the race thing, but also there's all these other legitimate reasons that one could imagine. Did you find that to be a source of stress or did you find it sort of a relief to know that there were these legitimate reasons as well? Ah, good question. Well, at the time, I, I guess I'd have to say it was a source of stress. We, re, we really had our, our sights focused on this manufacturing uh, venture. But, you know, in retrospect, I certainly understood why this would be a tough investment for, for folks. Clearly, you know, I would certainly side with someone who thought, hey, I, this sounds interesting, but I've got, I think, better options. You know, we did... I guess it was somewhat consoling, not completely consoling, but somewhat. When you look for investment money um, and submit applications and you know try to pitch to a group of investors, there's a filtering process that takes place. They don't they don't entertain everybody who's looking for their investments, and we we would often be invited to the table. Um, I guess we were interesting enough for them to take a, a deeper look at us, but we never got past that. We never made it past, you know, the first set of filters. So, you know, I took some consolation in the fact that we were interesting enough for them to give us a, a look. You know, there was another complicating factor. They, they had no idea what we were doing. This is not an area of industry or technology that any investors, particularly Bay Area investors, are familiar with. They're, they're much more familiar with software and games and hardware, et cetera. So, you know, that going against us as well. And if you don't mind, I mean, a couple of my most, I was going to call them interesting, but you'll see if I, if, if I tell you these stories, you'll see that interesting is not the word to, to describe them. I had two encounters in the course of trying to raise money that, that really stuck with me for whatever reasons, I guess. They're certainly, they were noteworthy to me. If you don't mind, I'd like to share them. Please. One of these opportunities we had to pitch our business to a group of investors in Silicon Valley, it seemed to land a little flat, you know, by the time the uh, event was over. And uh, I think we were pretty much ready to pack up and, and go home. And a gentleman came over to me and he said, I don't have time now, but I wonder if we could schedule something where you came by the office. I'd like to talk to you about this. I thought, this is fantastic. I don't, we never quite got this far before. And I said, absolutely. He gave me his card and I made, uh, made an appointment and went to see him. And he told me that he thought I was nuts, that I should be retired playing golf somewhere. Why was I taking on this kind of a challenge at this time of my life? I should really know better and he, it just didn't make any sense to him whatsoever. And he was hoping I would give it a second thought before I continued down this path. And I, I was dumbfounded. And you've had instances in your life, I'm sure many times when you're in a conversation with someone, even a tense conversation, where you wish you had said something and you don't think of it till the next day or till you're lying in bed that night or something, just some clever phrase or something, you know, to counter something that's been said to you. Well, this time it came to me right then and there. I didn't have to wait to go to bed that night to think of something to say to him. And what I asked him was, if this is how you feel, why didn't you just call me or send me an email? (laughs) Why did you drag me down to your office to lecture me this way? 
he said, well, you know, we're, we're both local guys. I didn't think it was really out of your way. And I thought, I thought I could make a bigger impression on you if I had you face to face. And he said, well, what's the difference? And I said, well, here's the difference to me. If you had emailed me, it would have been annoying and even upsetting. But I would have forgotten about it probably in a week or two or four. But because you've done this, I'm going to remember what an ass you were for the rest of my life. And he looked at me and his mouth gaping open, you know, and there was really nowhere to go from there. And I don't know that he even said anything after that. And, you know, I said something like, I, I guess I'll just let myself out now. And um, I didn't feel bad leaving there. I felt it was an extraordinary experience. It wasn't what I was expecting. And an investment would have been much nicer. But I felt that I told him exactly how I felt. And honestly, it felt good to get that off my chest. Ooh, the sting of someone who thinks they're helping. <laughs> yes. And Shana, you know, postscript on that, he's older than I am and still in, you know, in business for himself. So figure that out, please. So you've mentioned the value of role models, and it sounds like you don't really have any, any role model sort of 70-year-old entrepreneurs. So my question is, for someone who's 65 and interested in starting a new endeavor, do you feel like you had any special advantages of doing it now versus doing it earlier in your life? Yes. I mean, the first and obvious was, you know, just a ton of experience. I don't think you even begin to realize how much experience you have until, until it's called into play as you grapple with this challenge of starting your own business. But you bring a lot of experience to the table and you find yourself uh, dipping into that as needed and often, quite frankly. So that's something very special that you know a, a younger person simply can't do just by definition. The disadvantage, I think, is that you know, quite frankly, you don't have that many opportunities to, to get it wrong when you're at my age. An entrepreneur who's 28 years old, he or she can make a whole bunch of mistakes and, you know, and, and finally settle on that, on that exciting path. I just didn't feel like I had that luxury. <laughs> That's not necessarily why I stuck to something that was, quote, close to my knitting, so to speak. But I mean, I, I've always liked what I've done career-wise. And so that wasn't a real compromise to stay in that same field of manufacturing or packaging. You know, and I didn't have other, other, other avenues that were calling to me. But I think if I had, that would have been tougher because I didn't feel like I had room to make a lot of mistakes. And I think that's why the, uh, the statistic about older entrepreneurs having a much higher success rate than younger entrepreneurs, yes, yeah, some of that is due to their, the experience they bring to the table. There's no question. But I think the other factor is that I think that if they're anything like me, they probably go after challenges that are you know, within their jurisdiction, so to speak, where they're likely to be successful you know, where the learning curve isn't as steep as it would be if I decided to start a plumbing company, for instance. A great plan B. Yes. <laughs> no, you definitely don't want me as your plumber. <laughs> Have you ever been in a meeting where your team disagreed about the best course of action? Maybe you didn't know which message best resonates with your audience or exactly who your customers are, or maybe which features they want you to build. Customer research from an impartial third party can offer the clarity you need. That's why PhD Insights offers Customer Research Delivered. Customer Research Delivered uses a five-step process to apply customer research to answer your pressing business problem. Within four weeks, they'll design, host, deploy, and analyze a quantitative study so you can make better decisions to keep your business growing. Learn more about Customer Research Delivered by visiting phd-insights.com. That's phd-insights.com. Well, I'm wondering too, you know, you had mentioned earlier that at this point in your life, you still had a mortgage. Um, you had four kids. I'm wondering if 
being an older entrepreneur also affords you in an odd way some of the benefits of being a very young entrepreneur, that being freedom from other kinds of responsibilities. So it sounds yeah. like you had a mortgage, but it doesn't sound like you had three small children at home that you were still raising. No, you're absolutely right. There was no college tuition to pay, no, none of that. You're right. And, you know, I don't know what, a, what kind of a factor it is for other folks, you know, whether it's positive or a negative influence, but I had an amazingly supportive wife, amazingly supportive. I mean, it's hard to imagine having any kind of success, you know, without that kind of support. If other people are able to do it, it must come at a higher price, quite frankly, because it just makes life so much more worth living when, you know, your partner is right there, just cheering you on and supporting you. And that's been always, you know, something that I've been able to take advantage of. And I don't take it for granted in the slightest. Are there other factors that you think, so let's say someone who's listening to this is in their 60s and they've, they've thought about starting their own business and they're not sure if it's the right time. What are some of the other things you might use to decide whether or not that's a good idea? So if if someone was coming to you for advice, like, Paul, should I do it? Should I take the leap? Are there certain things that you would tell them, you know, may speak to their success or failure? I mean, I'm I'm far from an expert. My gosh, out of curiosity, I guess I'd ask them what the leap was, you know, what what they were getting into. Was Was it an area that they had already achieved some expertise in, you know, in another way, you know, through a corporate uh, employment or something like that. You know, was it something that required startup capital? Could they do it by their bootstraps? You know, did they have the support of, of a partner? Did they have a partner? I have a business partner at Pulpworks who joined the business, not on day one, but on day two, really. And that's made a big difference for me, you know, having someone else to shoulder the burden, having someone else to celebrate with, someone else to cry with. That's made it all that more meaningful for me than doing it by myself. I mean, if I did it by myself, I, I think I would have become really tedious at home because I probably would have ended up sharing everything with my wife only because I wanted, you know, wanted somewhere to share the triumphs or the failures um, instead of just kind of sucking it in myself. But having a partner really provides that opportunity. I, I think it's incredibly important if you can find, you know, that special partner. I know that's easier said than done, but it's made a big difference for me. So that's another question I would certainly ask. Well, on that, actually, I'd love to hear how, how did you find your partner? Because <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. It can It can be a big deal. And I know a lot of people that maybe they're not solopreneurs, but they don't really have a partner in the way that they would like for their business. And I agree that it matters. Yes. Well, the way we met is a, you know, a classic um, millennial story, although we're not millennials. I found her on LinkedIn. This was really early days when the plan was to build a manufacturing facility, but it wasn't you know, this wasn't going to be just any manufacturing facility in, you know, in my mind, this was going to be a a building powered by renewable energy, just, you know, LEED certified construction, all the green bells and whistles that, that I could possibly muster and which were all beyond my capability. That, that wasn't my background whatsoever. So I looked for an architect who had that kind of a background lead certification, renewable energy, the the whole bowl of wax. And I went on LinkedIn and I listed all of the search terms that I was looking for, in addition to, you know, an architect in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I, I just, I listed everything. And, you know, I knew that all of those qualifiers were bound to cut the list down considerably. And sure enough, you know, I hit submit and I got back only four names. I was glad I got four names. I could have easily ended up with none. And hers was the top one. And I wrote to her. She was at that very moment visiting her family in Italy. She grew up in Italy. She was back visiting her mom and sisters. And um, she wrote to me like in 10 minutes. 
I love what you're doing. I'm in Italy. I'll be back in the Bay Area by such and such a date. Let's get together. And, and that was it. That's amazing. I feel like that would, <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm like, oh, I should put in all the search terms I need for the things I'm looking for. But I guess my fear is that zero would come up as-, as Yeah, well, give it a try. Give it a try. <laughs> That's amazing. That's just amazing. Yeah. yeah, she, I mean, if we had pursued a manufacturing facility, she would have been the ideal uh, partner to pursue that. As it turned out, we tried for probably the better part of a year to raise money for this facility. And in the meantime- you know, she was learning about the business itself, not just the the architectural side of it, but the, the actual business itself. So, you know, by the end of the year, when we decided to scuttle our plans to build our own facility, she was kind of hooked on the business itself and had become very disenchanted with architecture. You know, it, it definitely wasn't a field where uh, where women had an equal chance with guys. Pretty, pretty hard to hear about famous female architects, as she pointed out. And she just become really fed up with it, quite frankly, and was ready to kind of change her career focus. So this came along at the right time. This is sort of an odd question, but you're now in a position where you're kind of the minority group, you know, the older entrepreneur. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe for the first time, I'm not sure. Has that given you more empathy to the experience of maybe women or, or people of color? No. Uh, <laughs> no, because I'd like to think that I always had empathy for women and people of color. So I don't think having entered into, you know, seniordom has made me even more empathetic. I really don't. It may have, but I'm not aware of it. So now that millennials are taking over the workforce, what do you think they should learn from their baby boomer coworkers? Or vice versa. Uh, <laughs> I do envy certain things about the millennials, or at least about the attributes that they are supposed to have. Like uh, what? I like that, that they're so independent about work. And uh, I mean, I guess I like that the other edge of that double-edged sword, you know, the, the double-edged sword where they think the whole world revolves around them. And, but I like the other edge of that where there's a balance to their lives. It's not just about work. Uh, I kind of envy that. I mean, I never felt that confident at that age as many millennials seem to feel. But I think the best among any group recognizes what other groups have to offer. So I don't know that the millennials are any different than than any other group. I mean, they, they have a lot of bad PR around certain things, but I've met many people who fall into that particular age category who just couldn't be more interested in what an older person has to share. And, you know, I will tell you that especially um, because of the exposure that my TED Talk provided me, I've met just countless, and when I say I've met, you know, mostly online or in most cases, some personally as well, but I've met just countless young people, not, you know, not even millennials, you know, whatever the group of, what is the group before millennials now? What is the? Maybe Gen Z? Gen, Gen Z. X? Yeah. I, I mix them up. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're right. Boy, they couldn't be more interested in what older people have to share. It just blows me away. I think it, it, it's just such a wonderful feature about them. Well, and we've only got a few minutes left. So I wanted to ask you, do you have an ask for the audience? Yes, I would ask the audience to demand less plastic in their packaging. I know that's a very specific ask, but our planet is polluted with plastic. I know it sounds self-serving because we make packaging that's not plastic, but and plastic does serve a marvelous purpose in many packages and in many ways, but there's just so much unnecessary plastic packaging. Reject it and complain to your to your retailers particularly because they'll complain to the manufacturers and your voice will be heard. But we have a huge plastic pollution crisis on our planet. It's serious and it's enormous. And I would ask everyone to start living their lives with less plastic and do it in a really meaningful way. It will make a difference. 
And when you say complain to the retailers, is that like the grocery store or Target yes. or what yes. level is that? Literally, literally. You know, when you buy something that's just overpackaged in plastic, what I've seen some folks do is they'll they'll literally unwrap it in the store and give the plastic packaging back to the clerk or the store manager and say, listen, I came here for this stapler. I didn't come here for, you know, three levels of plastic packaging to envelop my stapler. I don't want this. You know, and if you're upset by what I'm doing, express this to the manufacturer, not to me. I'm not the problem here. And hopefully if enough people do that, they will they will get back to the manufacturer and they will take a second look at this. They do listen to their consumers. Yeah, that's great advice. And I look at how over the last 15 years, the availability of healthier food products or at least purportedly healthier food products has really proliferated partly in response to consumer demand. So it's clear that it can be effective. Well, you know, Shane, I've worked in consumer packaged goods all of my life. And I know that complaints from consumers do resonate. I mean, my colleagues, some of whom worked in that part of the business, handling consumer complaints, and they do resonate with people. So my my favorite, I'll do quickly. I know you want to wrap up soon. My favorite anecdote around plastic packaging my wife came home from a well-known retailer. I'll leave the name off the show. These were heavy-duty industrial shears, I guess you'd call them. And the package in which they came said, tired of all that plastic packaging, you know, cutting your hands, use these heavy-duty industrial shears. They'll open any thickness of plastic packaging, et cetera, et cetera. Are you ready for the punchline? I am. <laughs> Packaged in plastic. The shears themselves were packaged in plastic. I mean, the irony was just too priceless. Wow. Well, for the sake of time, I won't tell you my my plastic story for today, but um, <laughs> but I can. Yeah, and I I guess one of the other quick tidbits for a switch for me was switching from plastic bags to paper bags. The grocery store, which is not a game changer, they're next to each other, <laughs> but you know, it's it's a little better. Excellent. Well. With that, Paul, um, thank you for being so generous with your time. I'd love to turn to our Think a Little Different round, sure. which we ask all of our guests. What's something you've changed your mind about in the last few years? My paternal grandfather, uh, who I didn't know, he died when I was five, was a Russian immigrant, first to Canada, then illegally. Well, I guess there wasn't a difference between legal and illegal. Uh, then he, you know, he sort of meandered over the border into the U.S. You know, as a young man. The stories I heard about him were that he wasn't really, I mean, I'll leave out the details, but he he wasn't a really swell guy, you know, physically and emotionally abusive. But they were stories. I don't know how much of it was based in fact. But I had the opportunity to meet a woman who was really interested in um, family trees and doing all the research on Ancestry.com and everything. And I told her that I really never knew much about my family. And I was just wondering, you know, if she could dig deeper beyond, you know, beyond my grandfather's generation, learn anything about where the family came from. So she considered it to be a challenge. And she just uncovered a ton of information about my grandfather. You know, I don't know that, that he wasn't the person that he was rumored to have been, but he was also rumored to have been sort of this illiterate kind of boorish man, you know, that uh, you can paint a pretty ugly picture of. And, well, it turns out that that's not the case at all, that he turns out that he did have an education. I mean, he went pretty far for somebody, you know, in the turn of the 19th century. He had like a beautiful penmanship. It was elegant, just his penmanship. And I started thinking about him differently. Maybe this wasn't quite the guy that the stories would have led me to believe. And um, I don't know that I'll ever, you know, get to the bottom of the mystery, but it did get me thinking a little bit differently about grandpa. I don't know. That's the first thing that came to mind when you asked the question. (laughs) That's beautiful. What's a view that's widely held by your peers or by people in your industry that you just aren't totally convinced by? I guess a lot of my peers feel that 
recycling is the answer to our plastic pollution problems. And recycling is an answer, but it's not the answer. And I, I really think when you've put that much emphasis on recycling to the exclusion of, of a lot of other activities, you really do a disservice because there's some, there's some other things that can be done in our industry outside of recycling that would have as much or greater impact on the health of our planet. But you take the focus off them when you, when you put the, you know, the entire focus on recycling. So I, I'm an advocate, but sort of a, a tempered advocate of recycling. What are the other things that you think are being overlooked? So it sounds like, obviously, for what you do, it would be producing less plastic. Are there other things besides that and recycling that you think are being overlooked? Yeah, no, but you said a mouthful. Producing less plastic is quite a challenge. And would, you just produce less plastic, Paul. No. <laughs> Point and, well taken. And would bring quite a reward as well. Quite a reward. Um, there's no question about it. It would be an amazing uh, change of events. There's an an enormous, uh, you know, billions and billions of tons of plastic created by uh, manufacturing processes. And, you know, it's all fossil fuel based for the most part, although we're beginning to do more and more through bioplastics, but it's still predominantly fossil fuel based and it just can't go on forever. It just doesn't work that way. Clearly the work you do now are things you want to see change. Yeah. Is there a common practice that you think will change in the next decade? Yes. I hope I didn't paint a bleak picture because things are improving. Companies are waking up, not rapidly, but they're waking up. Our business improves every year, gets a little bit better. There's no question about that. And we are grateful for that. I love getting up every day and and attacking the day. We get calls from companies that wouldn't even answer the phone a few years ago when we called. So things are definitely getting better. But we have some practices or we have some lack of practices, I should say, here in North America, particularly in the U.S., that they don't have in Europe and in some other countries in in Asia, Africa, Australia, etc., And I think those will change in the next decade, maybe state by state rather than nationally. But one of them is um, a practice that's very common in Europe and also in Canada, um, maybe every province of Canada, I'm not sure. It's called EPR, Extended Producer Responsibility. And what what EPR says is that you as the manufacturer of that package or that product, you're responsible for that right through to the, quote, end of its life. So if that package can't be uh, composted or biodegradable, if that's going to end up in a landfill and, and be toxic or, you know, God knows what, that's on you. And there's a cost associated with that. And the public should not be responsible for that cost. You created that package. It's your responsibility. What that's done in the EU and other countries throughout the globe, it's that that's motivated them to create packaging that's more sustainable. I mean, simply out of economics, if nothing else, they don't want to have to pay those extra fees and taxes that the government levies on them for creating non-sustainable or unsustainable packaging. And we don't have that here. We don't have that here. When, when you buy that bottle of Tide laundry detergent, as far as Procter & Gamble is concerned, they're done. Once you buy it or, or once they, you know, once Safeway buys it from them, I guess, they're done. They made the sale, check that box and on to the next. Well, that's not the case in countries that are governed by EPR regulations because companies are not regulating themselves. And so somebody's got to step in. And I think the more progressive states will step in and then other states will follow uh, suit. And I think consumers will maybe lead that fight as they have, you know, the plastic bag ban and all the other good fights that, you know, thoughtful consumers have led. They'll hopefully lead that fight as well. So I do see us adopting 
EPR type regulations in the next decade. You know, maybe there'll be EPR light or something like that. Of course, we would never jump in, you know, with both feet, but I do see that happening. On Innovation for All, we focus on this intersection between innovation, so business technology and entrepreneurship, and social impact. Hmm. And depending on the guest, that can be who gets to have big ideas, who doesn't get to have big ideas, how can technology or business help groups that have been traditionally overlooked, um, how are technology or business changing the ways that we relate to one another or culture. Who are two people you think would be interesting for us to speak to on the podcast? Well, <laughs> you really teed that one up for me because I was just thinking, I've, I've been talking to you for the last hour or so, and I never made mention of the fact that I am now a serial entrepreneur, if you're allowed to call yourself that, with two businesses. I did start another business a few months ago with two colleagues, and it's, it's still under the same general umbrella of sustainability and the health of our planet. But it, it's a much more tech-related business, and, it, and it's, it has to do with recycling, which we, you and I just talked about. And it's a, it's a device that we're developing to improve recycling, because recycling has a, has a long way to go. You probably heard that China doesn't take our recycling anymore, and, and that reason has to do with the fact that we've been sending them contaminated recycling, not product that they can readily use without cleaning it themselves. So we've developed something that we believe will make a change in the entire recycling industry. And two guests that I think would make wonderful guests for you would be my two colleagues. (laughs) But you walked right into that, Shana. I'm sorry. (laughs) That's on me. (laughs) (laughs) Because then they could spend the entire hour talking about my new business. (laughs) Where can people find you online? I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn, and Pulpworks is also on on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. I guess I'm on Instagram too, but I don't I don't use it nearly enough. My granddaughter told me I should be much more active on on Instagram. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, no, I'm pretty easy to find online. And our business Pulpworks has a website that's easy to find also. We'll put all those in show notes as well. Thank you. <laughs> With that. Paul Tasner, thanks for joining us on Innovation for All. My pleasure. Thank you, Shana. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I invite you to subscribe to Innovation for All on iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform. Thank you to our producer, Nia Taylor, our audio engineer, Dave Visaya, and Glorianne O'Kay, who compiles our show notes. You can view show notes from this and every episode at innovationforallcast.com.